maybe seated. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the second chapter of Mark. It's verses 1 through 12. Hear now the word of our Lord. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. Then Jesus saw their faith. He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. This is the word of God. May it find its way into our hearts and lives this morning by the power of his Holy Spirit. be seated. So I was having this moment, I have this little microphone on, and uh, it's to record the sermon so I can send it out in the week for people that weren't able to be here. I had this moment, it's like, I can't sing into that. <laughs> That's going to go into someone's ears, so uh, uh, you all, you all sing on my behalf. <laughs> no one needs that. Um. I want everyone to close your eyes for just a second. I'm going to say a word, and then I want you to think about what's the first image that comes to mind when you hear this word. Close your eyes for just a second. Church. Open your eyes. Church. What were, what, what, Images came to mind. Does, does anyone want to share? Yeah. Steeple with the cross. Love. Yeah. Anyone picture people you grew up with at church in your childhood? Yeah. Hmm. What I think of, and I can't help it, 
um, when I think of church, I think of this uh, nursery rhyme I learned in preschool at church about the church. And it goes like this. You put your hands like this, right? And you say, this, here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the doors. Here's all the people, right? Anyone ever learned that? Yeah, that is exactly what I think of when I think of the church. I just, I just picture these two hands together, the little steeple. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the door. Here's all the people. I want you to think about that. Hold that thought. What is it you think about when you think about church? So we're reading um, together uh, until Easter through the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to follow the journey of Jesus um, to Jerusalem, to the cross, and through the cross to the resurrection. And our guide is going to be this guy named Mark, who wrote this gospel. Now, Mark is not a very good writer. And here's what I mean. I was actually uh, an English major. And in one of the things I kind of learned is, is there's two types of writers. There, there are really good writers and there are really good storytellers, right? And, and really good writers are good at like that, that really um, precise flowerly language. They've always got the comma in the right place, right? They're very, they're very technical. They know the difference between um, uh, there, there, and there, right? <laughs> they know all that stuff. And, um, and Mark was not a really good writer. And one of the reasons we know that Mark uh, wrote the, the first gospel and that Matthew and Luke uh, looked to Mark for inspiration when they were writing their gospels is, is that Mark made a lot of grammatical mistakes. And Matthew and Luke... When they, were, uh, when they were using Mark and they, then they were adding their own stories that they had learned and, and teachings that, uh, that they had learned, um, they also went through and um, corrected some of the grammar. And so that's one of the clues we have that, that Mark sort of wrote that, uh, that first draft of the gospel that, that Matthew and Luke used and expanded upon. See, Mark also wrote in this, uh, this, this, this coin Greek, it's called. And the best way to phrase it is it's not really the Greek that writers use. It's more of a, a country kind of Greek that common people speak. And this is the kind of Greek that Mark wrote in. But Mark is an amazing storyteller. And in fact, if you sat down this afternoon, wouldn't be a bad thing to do, by the way. If you sat down this afternoon with the Gospel of Mark, you could probably read it from beginning to end, and it would never lose your interest. If you tried to do that with John this afternoon, it's not that many chapters longer, but it would lose your interest. You, you get lost. You have to go back and reread things, right? Um, uh, but Mark is a master storyteller. He knows how to arrange his stories in such a way that, that he'll, he'll tuck a smaller story inside of a, a larger story, and each will sort of inform the other and, and, help, us, and, and help us think about each story in a different way. 
Um, he knows how to pace the action that, um, you know, uh, when we need a relief from the action, we have a little bit of teaching and then we're back into the action again. Um, he's just a master storyteller. Even though he's not good at, you know, uh, putting everything in just the right way, he is good at using just the right words. See, I bring this all up because Mark is trying to do something special here with this story. He's trying to point his readers in the direction of the church. He's trying to get his readers to think about the church as they read this story. Most of us, when we think of the church, we think of the steeple with the cross. But Mark's audience, when they thought of the church, they were used to meeting in each other's homes. That is where church happened. And so, um, so, so when Mark points out that this, uh, this story happened in someone's home, the audience is already halfway there. But then he uses a couple of word choices that helps get, get the reader in the right frame of mind. He says that they gathered there inside the home. And the word he uses for gather is this word, synago. It's the same uh, word we used in synagogue, right? This is the kind of gathering that churches do. They gather. And what is Jesus doing? Normally, in the gospel, Jesus is driving out evil spirits. He's healing people. But in this story, he's proclaiming the word, right? Because that's what happens in a church atmosphere. The people have a synagogue. They've gathered uh, like they do at church. It's like if I used the word congregated, right? You would start thinking, oh, congregation. I see what you're doing there, right? The people are congregated in this house. And the word is being proclaimed. See, I think Mark wants us to begin thinking about our church. How does our church match up to this vision of what a church is supposed to be? And so Mark sort of gives um, two dueling visions of what a church is. First, he shows us the inward-looking church, right? At the very beginning of the story, Jesus is preaching the word Everyone's congregating into this house, and everyone's looking in. They're focused on Jesus. They're focused on what's going on. And see, on the outskirts, no one notices. There's a man who's been paralyzed. There's a man who's been paralyzed, and, and he needs to get to the feet of Jesus. But everyone's turned in. They're focused on what's going on out here, and they don't see what's going on out there, right? And so everyone's turned in, and, and, and this person needs to get to the feet of Jesus, and uh, the guys holding him can't even get through the front door, right? This is the inward-looking church. But then Mark shifts the focus. He pans out just a little bit. You see this crowd of men, Four of them have the guy on a mat. And this is the outward-looking church. This is the church, instead of having their gaze fixed in, into the building, 
They're looking out. They're looking out for the paralytic. We're told that this paralytic is their friend. In other words, someone that they have a relationship with. See, the word paralytic, um, uh, another uh, root in that word paralyticos, I think, is, uh, is, is detached, right? This is someone who is detached from society. This is someone who is uh, detached from his own motor function. This is someone who, who longs to be part of the community, and he has these friends, these people who have made it a point to keep this person in their life. And we've heard that Jesus is in town, and they have a mission to get this man to the feet of Jesus. And for you and I, church, that's our mission. I believe we are called to be an outward-looking church, not an inward-looking church. We are called to get people to the feet of Jesus. Whatever it takes, get people to the feet of Jesus. And so if we look at this crowd of guys that are holding uh, this, uh, this, this paralytic they are holding this guy's mat. If we look at them, I believe we, we, we see the principles of what an outward-looking church looks like, how it acts. The first thing I noticed when I was reading this story about the outward-looking church is that they don't give up. They don't give up. They allow themselves to come up with a creative solution. At the first sign of trouble, right, when these guys are faced with the crowd, when the door is blocked, they don't say, oh, well, we tried. Let's take our friend home. We'll try some other time. No, instead of giving, instead of giving up, they decide to hatch a harebrained scheme. Now, I don't know this is exactly how it happened, but I have a gut feeling it went something like this. The four guys are carrying the mat. They get to the crowd of people, right? There's no way in. One of them says, well, I guess it's not going to work. Guess we can't do it. Guess we have to come back tomorrow. And then the other guy looks at the situation. He sizes it up. And this is translated from the Aramaic. But he says, hold my beer. We can do this, right? I've got a plan. Redneck's last words, I've got a plan, right? We can do this. And so they get up on the roof. They make a hole where there was no hole, right? And they get the guy to the feet of Jesus. To be an outward-looking church, we're going to have to get creative. We're going to have to, to find a solution to get people to the feet of Jesus. And, and, and that may mean doing things differently than we've ever done them before. It might mean there being a hole where there once was a roof. Y'all have met the people that you've tried over and over and over again to get to church, right? You invite them to church and they say, well, 
you know, I'm going to come to church someday, you know. Um, I really plan, but I need to get my life straight first. I need to get my ducks in a row. And they all say it, don't they? If I walked into church, man, the roof would cave in. The roof would cave in. Well, in this story, that's exactly what happens. The roof caves in. And maybe we need to make the roof cave in around here, right? Maybe we need to make this a place where people feel welcome. Where people feel like, well, I guess the roof won't cave in in that place because it's already caved in, right? Where, where people feel welcome. I think of the first pastor I ever worked for. His name was, uh, um, was David, Pastor David. And um, it was in this uh, small college town. And in addition to being the pastor there, he also taught some classes there at the college. And he had this, uh, this professor that he'd been working on, constantly trying to get him to church. And finally, he was talking to him one day and says, you know, um, why won't you come to church with me? And the guy says, well, honestly... I have fond memories of church as a kid. I loved going to church as a kid. We would sing songs. Um, we, we, we'd have a story. We'd take a break um, for a snack. Um, I, I, I just loved going to church as a kid. But now going back as an adult, it's kind of dull. We don't sing simple songs that I know. Um, we don't take a snack break. Um, the sermon seems really long, right? And um, Pastor David says to this guy, will you come to my church next week? And he says, all right, I'll give it a shot. And I'll never forget Pastor David calling us all into his office and saying, okay, this Sunday, we're going to do church like when we were kids. And we did. That Sunday, all the songs were, Jesus loved me, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart, all those songs. We took a break for snacks halfway through. Um, uh, and, and when it came sermon time, um, uh, he stood in a rocking chair with a book and told the story of the three trees, right? This was to reach one person. The pastor caved in the roof for that Sunday morning to reach one person, like, like that shepherd leaving the 99 to go into the hills for the one. How badly... Do you want to reach one person? How big of a mess are you willing to make to get one person to the foot of Jesus, to the foot of the cross? Because that's the second thing about being an outward-looking church is we've got to be willing to make a mess around here. And I'm not talking metaphorically. I'm not talking, like, spiritually. I mean, we have to be willing to make a mess around here. Um, I've been in youth ministry um, for 13 years now. And one thing I've learned, every church I've ever gone to is their youth pastor. They all tell me the same thing. We just want to have this church full of teenagers. And only a small percentage of them ever mean it. <laughs> right? Because a church full of teenagers 
is messy. What they usually mean is we want to know that there's a youth ministry, but we don't want to see, touch, smell, or feel it, right? (laughs) We want you to clean up your mess, and we don't want to know that you were ever here. And I discovered just a long time ago that, um, that, you know, we're going to resurrection this weekend, and we'll do an away trip in the summer, but I don't do a lot of, of trips, like going to Six Flags, like um, let's go bowling, or um, I, I just don't do a lot of those trips. And here's the reason I've discovered why, okay? Um, when I think back at the, the trips I went on as a kid, like a Six Flags or, um, or one of those other types of trips, um, I can never in my memory remember who I went with. Did I go with the soccer team? Did I go with the band? Did I go with um, the youth group? I remember Six Flags was fun, but I don't exactly remember who I was with. But when I look back at those memories of playing flashlight tag in the sanctuary, I know where that was and who that was with. And so as a youth minister, I've just always tried as many things I can do in the building as possible, I will do. Because I want people to be like churchgoers for life, and I want them to have those, those warm memories of, of, of church being a welcoming environment to them. But that means we make a mess. That means everything doesn't get put back the way it was necessarily. That means on Sunday morning, um, uh, someone will be sitting in their pew and they'll notice some Nerf darts uh, under their pew. And they'll pick it up and they'll say, what is this? And I'll say, I have no idea. The Boy Scouts must have left it there. But it's because we were having a Nerf fight in the sanctuary. Judge me if you will. But those teenagers will never forget that. They will never forget that they went to a church that let them have Nerf fights in the sanctuary. We are going to have a vacation Bible school this summer. And all of y'all are going to help. Okay? Just throwing that out there. We are going to have a vacation Bible school this summer. And all of y'all are going to help. We're not a megachurch. Everyone has to help. All right? And we're going to make a mess. It's just going to happen. Something might get broken. I hope not. We're going to try our best not, but something might get broken. We may wind up with the stain on a carpet somewhere that someone doesn't like. But the question is, how much do you want one little child to get to the feet of Jesus? And how big a mess are you willing to make? If we had a recovery ministry in here, where where people... um, uh, it came to meetings during the week. Would we be okay with that? Would we be okay with those people turning around and coming to church on Sunday morning? Would we put up with the, the cigarette butts in the parking lot? Would we put up with the strange smells? Would we put up with the occasional stolen property? I'm just asking, right? Because we have to be willing to tolerate a little bit 
of a mess if we're going to be an outward looking church. The other thing about being an outward looking church is we have to be willing to ignore the naysayers, right? We have to be willing to ignore the naysayers, the negative voices. They're in this story, right? The scribes, the teachers of the law. They're they're nowhere to be found at the beginning of the story. And then halfway through the story, they just sort of interrupt the proceedings, right? They remind me of uh, Statler and Waldorf. They're the, uh, the, the two old men Muppets that sit in the balcony during the Muppet show, and they just uh, sort of holler out their insults halfway through the show. Oh, this show is so moving. Yeah, I wish they'd move it to Pittsburgh. Oh, right? Um, describes just like Statler and Waldorf, and we're told that they're sitting, right? They're not even participating. They're just sitting to one side and they're judging the proceedings. Let me tell you, I get their emails all of the time. There are a lot of experts. They're experts about the church, right? I get, I, I get all of these emails about studies that people have done to tell uh, what has worked and what hasn't worked in the church, Right? And a lot of these experts sit on the sidelines and they tell you what worked for them at McMega Church in L.A. And, and they say that that's the way you're supposed to do your church in Ryanair, Virginia. Right? And they all point to these statistics about what has and hasn't worked. You know what's insane about that? Is what has and hasn't worked isn't necessarily what's going to work this morning. What God has and hasn't done isn't necessarily what God is going to do this morning. It's like the two guys from eastern Kentucky that decide they're going to pull their money together and they're going to go to the big casino uh, in North Carolina and they're going to win some money, right? And so they pull their money together. uh, They go to North Carolina to Cherokee to the casino and and they they play the first game they see. And, And it's a dice game. And it's real simple. All you've got to do is bet on the right number, and, uh, and you can double your earnings. And so they, uh, they plunk down some of their cash, and, uh, and the one guy calls out six. Roll the dice, and it's a three. And the other guy says, you, sh- you should have said three, right? And then the guy, uh, the guy uh, calls out four. Roll the dice, and this time it's a three. And the guy says, see, you should, have, you should have yelled three. This time, they roll the dice. The guy yells three. It's two, right? It's, they're walking out. They've lost all their money. And the one guy turns to the other. If you had just listened to me, we'd be rich, <laughs> right? That's the way these so-called experts are. If we had just listened to them, we'd be rich, Right? But you can't constantly be looking back at what has and hasn't worked. We have to be focused on the mission here in the moment. And one thing I've learned about critics is some people are just always upset. I've just learned this. Some people are just always upset. Some people are never happy no matter what you do. Now, that's not the vast majority 
most people are reasonable and um, and if you rub them the wrong way and and you figure out what you did and you do something different the next time they'll forgive you right but but every church has that one person right that's just always upset and the only time they're ever happy is when they're unhappy right and uh, and one of the churches I worked at I'd always have these annual reviews and it'd be with the pastor and he'd sit me down and tell me what people were saying. And I, I always knew what people were saying. Like I could see the face when he said people are saying. It was always the same two people, by the way. And he would say, uh, the first time he said, you know, people are saying you're in the office too much. Like, you need to be out in the community. You need to be meeting people. You just don't need to be in your office all the time planning things. I took it to heart. Of course, I was a youth and children's minister, and so um, the people I was ministering to were in school during the day. So, um, And it wasn't like here. Like, I can go to Radford High School during lunchtime and sit down with the kids, and it's not a big deal. In Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, like, you had to state your business and you had to have a reason to be there. And so it was a bigger deal. Um, but I thought, well, I, you know, I can meet the other youth pastors in the area, you know, um, uh, plan some lunches. I can um, go work in the youth room for a while just so people won't see me in the office all the time. The next year, uh, we're having our, our annual review. And yet some people are saying, and it's the same two people, you're not in your office enough. We never see you here. We wonder what we're, we're paying you for, right? Some people are just never happy. You got to block out those voices if you're going to get people to the foot of the cross. You're going to have to block out the voices that you say, you can't do that. Because if we, we can't be focused on mission criticism, if we're going to do the critical mission. We can't be focused on mission criticism if we're going to do the critical mission. You take good advice, you take it all in, you look at those statistics, but ultimately you follow the lead of the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, you follow the the most direct line you can find between where you're at and the foot of the cross between where you're at and the feet of Jesus. And if that means going through the roof, then by golly, we're going through the roof. That's how an outward-looking church thinks. Finally, an outward-looking church has faith. See, Jesus is in the middle of a sermon. He's proclaiming the word. Uh, he's, he's probably telling some wonderful parable that, that we're never going to know about because right in the middle of it, plop, the, the, the paralytic falls in front of him. There's like dirt and dust everywhere. He looks up and there's four guys grinning. <laughs> and he looks at those four guys and it says, He sees their faith. He sees their faith. And then he looks at the paralytic. And he says, son, your sins are forgiven. See, the paralytic's sins aren't forgiven 
because of his faith. The paralytic sins aren't forgiven because he's such a great guy. The paralytic sins are forgiven because of the faith of the four guys that got him to the foot of Jesus. Think about your own life. Who here is here this morning because of someone else's faith? Because someone else saw something in you? Because someone else carried you? Because someone else, when you were at your darkest, when you were at your lowest, and when you said, I'm not coming, someone else came and got you and dragged your sorry butt here. Who here is here because of that? Because of the faith of someone else. And the only response to that is to pay it forward. Is to go pick up someone else's mat and get them here to the feet of Jesus. A story about a little girl named Jamie. And uh, Jamie was 12 years old and she was in a bad car accident. And she lost her right arm. And she didn't want to go back to school. She didn't want to go back to church. She didn't want to go to Walmart and be out in public because she was so self-conscious of her right arm. And finally, her parents decided, we've got to get her back out into the world. We're going to go to church on Sunday, and then we're going to, uh, to uh, go back to school on Monday. And so they called ahead to the church, to, to the Sunday school teacher, and said, hey, um, Jamie's coming this morning. She is really self-conscious about her right arm. If, if you could just do your best not to draw any attention to it. Well, the Sunday school teacher wound up having to call in sick, and there was a substitute that morning. And uh, Jamie got there and did Sunday school, and everything went along fine until the very end. And the Sunday school teacher, not trying to be mean or anything, just not really thinking, just tried to lead the group in that rhyme. Here's the church, here's the steeple, open the door, here's all the people. Of course, Jamie's only got her left arm. But before Jamie can realize, before Jamie can start to cry, before Jamie can start to feel different than all the other kids, this 13-year-old boy runs up to him, uh, grabs her left arm by his right arm, and puts his hand in hers. And together, hand in hand, they do it. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the door. Here's all the people. See, that is what a church is. That is what a church is all about. You and I taking each other by the hand. You and I doing for one another what we cannot do for ourselves. You and I, without thinking, just instinctively making a beeline to the feet of Jesus. Ignoring the mess, ignoring the naysayers, ignoring all the obstacles 
and just doing what we can to show grace in one another's life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.